we were going to have an annual meeting. And so I didn't do any sermon preparation today. And then all the snow hit, and we thought, I don't know. I, I just really had no idea. And, uh, and then this morning, reading a, a blog post on, on our security, the, the, the author cited Deuteronomy 32, 39, that you can see there. See now that I, I am he, and there is no God beside me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal, and there is none who can deliver from my hand. And he, he used it at the introduction to say our security is never dependent on us. It's, it's never measured by us. It's always determined by God. And I, I, I started looking for cross-references and not necessarily thinking about uh, Chris and Alyssa, about anybody in particular, but then really thinking about myself. And um, we were up early. We didn't have to go to Creighton this morning, and so I, I actually ended up designing a tumbler with a bunch of verses on it. And I, I made that, and then it didn't work, and so I've got to remake it. So I've got a, I've got a, a spare for for Miss Penny to have. Um, I just wanted to, this is not a sermon, I just want to walk through nine passages with you in, in what I hope is kind of a logical order. Okay? So the, the first one is Deuteronomy 32:39, and it really calls us to recognize that God is God. We're not God. Why does anyone live or die? It, it's God. It's because of what he does. It's because of his power. It's because of, of his choice. He makes it absolutely ab- abundantly clear that he is God, that there is no God beside him. Um, this is not popular in our time. I get that. I understand that. Uh, I can't help that. But he puts to death. He gives life. In our time, certainly in the world, God only gives life. He doesn't do anything but give life. He doesn't do anything but affirm. What is it that you want to do? What's really on your heart? He'll affirm it. That's what he's there to do. He's, a, he's an approval vending machine, a free approval vending machine. All you got to do is put, push the button and you'll get approval. He won't approve of the things you disapprove of, though. Right? He won't approve of that. So if you think that racism is bad, God thinks racism is bad. But if you think homosexuality is okay, so does God. It's almost as though man has made God in his image. Weird idea. But he says it's, it's he himself who puts to death. He puts to death. He wounds. He's he's the one who does these things. He wounds. He heals. So we would want to say if Carolyn Miller called Penny and said, it's gone. I can move. I can walk. Mike and I are walking around Skyview Park right now as fast as we can, and I'm not tired. 
We would praise God that he had done a miracle. But our hearts resist the idea that God has anything to do with her her disability, with her sickness. What we want to say there is it just kind of happened. But all things ultimately have to come through his fingers. The reason that all things have to come through his fingers is that if only the good things come through his fingers, what guarantee is there that the bad things won't overwhelm him? So everything ultimately has to come from him. And, and especially when it comes to his enemies, there is nobody who can deliver from his hand. So when, when God decides to put to death or to wound, you can't stop him. The opposite is true. When he decides to give life and heal, you can't stop him. So with, you know, with using, uh, using the couple I mentioned beforehand, since this is now being recorded, using the couple that I mentioned beforehand, can, can he forgive them? Can he save them? Can he, can he restore them if they know him? Can he save them if they don't? Absolutely. Of course he can. Um, can he heal our thinking? Of course. This never stops, see. This always goes on. We see a, a parallel statement in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 6. It's a little briefer, but it, it gets into the spiritual element, I think, in a clearer way. God puts to death and he makes... Alive, he brings down to Sheol and raises up. Sheol is uh, what we would perhaps simply call hell. He casts down. So we get that, right, in basic terms. We understand that. But if you share the gospel with somebody and you say to somebody, your sins will send you to hell, you're wrong. God will send them to hell. Sin is not a thing that exists that has some kind of energy or power behind it that God is actively resisting. Sin is just you violating him. Faith is nothing surprising or special. Faith is just you trusting God. Your will is not some weird part of your, of your makeup. Your will is just you making decisions. That's, that's all your will is. So when God condemns, he condemns. Sin doesn't condemn. He doesn't sit there wringing his hands and saying, oh, I... I wish I could do something about this. He could. He could have, the moment Adam sent, God could have said, you know, all that stuff about death, never mind. The problem is he can't lie. He can't lie. What we have as a guarantee isn't what he said to Adam. Because there was no hope to Adam in Genesis 2, was there? In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Full stop. Move on to the next topic. There's no promise of a savior. Is there? And yet, there is every promise of a savior. 
because the purposes of God were determined before creation. So even though God had not made a promise to you, he had promised within the Trinity. And his promises within the Trinity are as binding upon him as his promises to you. So Yahweh brings to death, Yahweh makes a life, he brings down to Sheol and he raises up, so he brings down to judgment and he can raise us up from judgment. He has the power, it's not his will as far as I can see in scripture, but he has the power in 10 million years, once we're millions of years into the eternal state, to empty hell and to grant all of those people who are there salvation in Christ. He has the power. He has said he won't. That's why he won't. It's not that hell has a grip that God can't break. Does the fact that we have life signify anything? To the Jews, they believe that those who are rich, remember uh, Jesus said it is impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven and his disciples said then who can be saved because there's this cultural belief that said if you're rich if you're blessed then you have God's favor and if those who have God's favor can't enter heaven what hope is there for me I'm poor so I don't have God's favor and they always made it about what I did or what I didn't do why does somebody go to hell why does somebody not go to hell? Why does somebody get forgiven in Christ? Why are we kept in Christ in spite of our sins, in spite of our weakness? Why don't we cross the line that other people cross? And it's because, simply, simply put, God does not change. This is in Malachi chapter 3. It's at the very end of the Old Testament. I don't know if chronologically Malachi was the very last prophet, but he's in the last generation. For I, Yahweh, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Why are you not consumed? Because we're good. Because we're children of Abraham. Because we're circumcised. Because we're baptized. Because we go to church. No, we're not consumed because God does not change. The implication here is that even for the righteous, there's not enough righteousness to take us to heaven. There's not enough righteousness within ourselves to make us right with God. You need to remember that that justification is, uh, is a declaration. not a transformation. In justification, we are declared righteous. We are not yet made righteous. One day that transformation will take place and we will be righteous. But right now we are simply credited with righteousness. And the reason that you and I today are not consumed by God for our sins is that God doesn't change. Not because we don't change. Not because we've been faithful. 
but because he doesn't change. So Jeremiah, the weeping prophet who suffered so much, who was told by God how much he would suffer, told you're going to spend your whole life proclaiming my word to these people and not one will listen to you. He writes in Lamentations, which, by the way, is a book of weeping and wailing. But in Lamentations is, is maybe one of the most precious statements in Scripture. The loving kindnesses of Yahweh indeed never cease. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I added the exclamation point because it just it just needs an exclamation point. It's, there's a period in the London in the, the Legacy Standard Bible. It needs an exclamation point. Great is God's faithfulness, and Yahweh is my portion, says my soul, and and therefore I wait for Him. Why did you wake up this morning? Because God's mercies are new every morning. So as you and I go through our lives, he is not building up the case against us. For people in the world, probably the dominant issue across the board, the thing that's most common is simply that they're given over. God has given them over. For people who belong to Christ, I think, I can't prove this from scripture, I can't prove it from anything but my experience and observation. I think the dominant issue for Christians is I'm afraid because of my sin. I'm afraid that the longer I'm in Christ, the worse I get. I'm afraid that I'm losing ground with God. The, the, the falseness of that is that we, many of us be, kind of begin by thinking, I've done God a favor by believing in his son. I'm smarter. I'm better. Even those of us that are diehard reformed Calvinists have a deep Arminian streak to us. And we think we did it. We did it. I did it. I did it. Why did they fall into sin? Well, it's because of who they are. Why have I never fallen into that sin? Well, I'm better. No. See, the same God who gives over restrains. And the mercies of God today keep me from doing that. And so I need to recognize that so that tomorrow morning I call upon his mercies and say, I recognize that I woke up today because of your mercies, that you're not giving me over today because of your mercies, that, that as you restrain me and I ask that you would restrain me, I ask that you would violate my will, I ask that you would completely interfere with my, my life and trash my wicked plans and have your way. What kind of control does God exert over people? Psalm 37, 23, and 24. The footsteps of a man are established by Yahweh, and he delights in his way. And I, I, I think we need to take man here as a righteous man, as a man that already has God's favor. 
The footsteps of a man are established by Yahweh, and he delights in his way. When he falls, when the man falls, he will not be hurled headlong because Yahweh is the one who sustains his hand. It's like walking with a toddler. And you're holding your hand in theirs, and they trip. And what do they do? They just kind of dangle from your hand because you don't let go. I saw a video uh, in the past weeks. Uh, it was a security video in a, in a stairway, and a woman comes out of an office with two little kids. And there's a man coming up the stairs you can see on this side. There's an elevator kind of in the middle, and then you can see on the other side the ele elevator is, is the stairwell, and there's just a grating. There's, there's just some vertical bars. She's holding on to, to, to one child, and the other child goes tumbling, goes stumbling forward and tumbles through the bars. And she goes leaping and grabs him by the feet. And the guy who's coming up runs downstairs to try and catch. And I think she drags that kid up. Well, when he falls, he will not be hurled headlong because God has our hand. So what do we do when we actually are tempted and we actually do give in? We're not hurled headlong if we belong to him. He will allow us judiciously and surgically, I think, to stumble into sin for his purposes and for his glory, for our teaching, for our purification. That sounds weird, but sometimes wounding is necessary to heal. And the reason that we don't go tumbling into hell, the reason we're not hurled into judgment is because Yahweh is the one who sustains our hand. Why does the Lord waits so long to judge the wicked and the wickedness in our world. And uh, it's your fault. It's your fault. It's the fault of the elect. The Lord is not slow about his promises, some consider slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now, this is a commonly misquoted passage. This, this is said to be the evidence that God wants everybody to be saved. So this is how I explain this. What, what we have to do is, is identify you. God is patient toward you. Who's the you? Well, the only way to find out who you is is to go back to the beginning of the letter and see who Peter addresses the letter to. And if you do that, you'll find out that Peter addresses this second epistle to the saints, to believers. That's the you. He's patient toward you, the elect, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. All of who? Well, he's told us that. So Peter, when he says you, is not just writing to the you who physically received his letter and read it. He's writing to all believers. Why has God not, why has God not yet judged the wicked? It's your fault. He has given you time to repent. 
Because if he had judged the wicked on day one, we wouldn't be here. Adam and Eve would be in torment in eternity, and none of us would be here. It, the, the, it, there's a reminder here to me of Romans 9, uh, which, which talks about vessels of wrath and vessels, uh, I'll write that. Come on, try it that way. And vessels of mercy. That God is displaying his wrath toward vessels of wrath and his kindness toward vessels of mercy. You just got to remember we're all scooped out of the same pot. Vessels of wrath are what we're born as, children of wrath, Paul calls it in Ephesians 2. God has has mercy on some, and he redirects us. He changes our lives. He enters in and changes our lives. But we, we all begin as vessels of wrath. Hello. We all begin as vessels of wrath, and it's by his mercy that we become vessels of mercy. He's not willing for any vessel of mercy to perish. So there are people who survive into their 70s and 80s and 90s and come to Christ very late in life. Why did they survive? Because God was patient toward them and he was not willing for them to perish, but rather for them to come to repentance. Now, it is God's command, Acts 17 says. He commands all people everywhere to repent. He commands it, but he doesn't enable it. He's not obligated to enable. So why does the Lord wait so long to judge the wicked? Because he's patient. He wants those who have sinned to repent and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so as, as even as we think about those who have fallen into sin, We don't know if this is the fall and this is the point where his spirit will no longer strive with them or if this is falling but not hurling headlong and out of this he will bring them to salvation. It's always our job as Christians to warn people of the judgment to come. It's never our job as Christians to pass that judgment on them. We need to tell them without Christ you are under his judgment. But none of us are in a position to say, and you're not coming. You're not coming. The Apostle Paul, Linda and I watched the, the Derek Thomas Galatians, I think it was the second? Second? The first and second yesterday. And he makes the comment about Paul's wickedness and the amount of power that he had. And Paul, Paul was actually in a position early on to destroy the church. If God had permitted it, if the Lord had permitted it, it was small enough, it was insular enough that they, they could have done it. He could have killed them all. But the Lord had mercy on him as, as well as the believers at the time. Paul, at the end of his life, calls himself still the chief of sinners. I am the chief of sinners, he says. Not I was. It's a faithful statement worthy of all acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Not, and I was, but I am. 
So St. Paul who says, I beat my body daily so having preached to others, I myself might not be cast away. He's not saying I engage in a huge amount of legalistic activity to make myself feel better. It's I don't trust myself. And so I live in this constant state of awareness of my own sin and repentance before the Lord. Well, with all of this, how secure is our salvation? God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of the Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. If God loved you and saved you prior to you trusting him, how much more now that you've trusted him will he keep you, is what he's saying. This is a memory verse at the mission. Romans 5.8. We want them all to remember that. Why does God save anyone? Second Corinthians, Second Thessalonians two thirteen and fourteen, really verse fourteen. It was for this He called you that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, we are beloved by the Lord. God has chosen us. By the way, I'm, I'm seeing some information now and uh, talks going back and forth again about lordship salvation. And uh, it's not being this. Now I'm not seeing it compared to easy, the easy believism, but rather it's law and gospel. That the gospel is only believe. The gospel is never do. But they're, they're taking repent and surrender as a do, which it's not. So here what we see, God has chosen you as the first fruit salvation through sanctification and faith. The sanctification is the work of the Spirit. We don't make it happen, but we live it out. It's part of working out our salvation with fear and trembling. So where somebody claims to have faith but they have no sanctification. We are right to say, I, I wonder about your faith. We're not right to say, therefore, you're not saved. We can't do that. We don't have the authority to do that. But we can to say somebody can say to somebody, salvation requires both faith and sanctification, both. It requires both. Both are the work of God. So John MacArthur on the Lordship Salvation says we are saved by faith alone. But that faith brings about a transformation. And the very first work of transformation is surrender. Somebody who says I believe but won't won't surrender, won't confess, won't repent, doesn't believe. 
That's the evidence that they don't believe. We're not saved because we repent. We're saved because we believe, but repentance becomes a natural thing. And then here's the promise. My sheep hear my voice, Jesus says, and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish ever. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. John 10, 27 to 29. I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, ever. He emphasizes the, the ever by using a double negative in the Greek text. There we go. Sorry about that. Uh, he he emphasizes the the never by using a double negative. That double negative closes out any possibility at all, at all, that they could perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. <coughs> no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So to be in Christ is to be doubly held. It's to belong to the Father and to be given to the Son. But the Father, in giving you to his Son, didn't let go of you. He didn't transfer you from his hand to the Son's hand. You're held by the Father and you're held by the Son. And there is no power in heaven on earth that can pry those fingers open. This is true in spite of the fact that we're weak and that we sin, and that we don't believe rightly, we don't understand rightly, we're unclear on things. We exist in kind of this pendulum existence where we go through a time when we're just deeply passionate and we're not thinking and we, we kind of swing over and we're thinking as deeply as we possibly can, but it kind of leaves our hearts untouched. And then all we can think about doing, doing is, is trying to share the gospel with, with unbelievers. And then we have an opportunity to share with believers and to strengthen them. And it's just really hard to get our arms wrapped around everything. Jesus Christ was the only one who, who was able to do all of it all the time perfectly. We just swing. And that's right. That's just the way it is. It may not be right, but it is, but it is the way it is. So how are we kept secure? We're kept in the hand of Christ. It's not about you. It's about him. And because of his grip, because of the Father's grip, your faith is an effectual faith. As little as it is, as weak as it is, as uncertain as it is sometimes, your faith is effectual. It's not about the size of the faith, it's about the one in whom you believe. 
I know this wasn't a, a sermon properly speaking, and I apologize for that. This has been recorded if you want to go back and, and listen to it again. I would urge you to take these verses and consider them. Consider the authority of God and the sovereignty of God and consider your need for mercy that's every day, that's ongoing, and let that need for mercy humble you. Let his, his enormous grace give you gratitude. Learn to be at peace with what he does in the lives of others. Whether you understand it or not, to pray for them when they're, when they're failing and when they're falling, but to let him be their God. And then to trust him as your God completely and entirely. Father, I thank you for your love for us and your kindness to us. Thank you for bringing us together on this day. Please bless your people. Uh, there, there are many who are not with us today. And uh, remind them of, their love, uh, of, of your love for them. Hold them in your hands. Some are like Carolyn, and they uh, all they can do now is think. And some are like Diane. They can barely think at all. All they can do is react. We're not kept by our ability to think, and we're not kept by our reactions. We're kept by you. And we thank you for your faithfulness and your goodness to us. And in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.